Ladies and gentlemen, the exact same time this episode drops, I will be rocking my first pair of glasses. Not sunglasses, glasses. Your boy is apparently short-sighted. In the words of Public Enemies, Chuck D, bring the noise. FM Podcast Network. I am Charlie Taylor and this is What's Good. Welcome back ladies and gentlemen, hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. I might be short-sighted, but that vision's clear baby. <laughs> that means absolutely nothing. <laughs> that means absolutely fuck all. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know if I talked about, well yeah I did talk about going to Emmy Sunday. So I went and uh i really enjoyed it i nearly cried several times so you know it was good um shouts to bina who uh, supported her um she's amazing nice please go pete b-i-n-a uh definitely worth a pete um but yeah i was i was watching and uh i was i i i don't want to say i couldn't see anything but let's just say if, if, if there's a photography there's a photography term called bokeh and uh for those who don't know basically it's that blurred it's the blurred background like if you have if you're doing a if you're in portrait mode of like whatever phone you have right the point of that is to accentuate the bokeh um which is the blurred backgrounding and to make it look like and basically the separation between the foreground and the background right so if you're taking a picture with someone in the foreground the background's going to be blurred if you use something around like a portrait mode um, or most cameras, right? They just default to do that and to create bokeh. Um, so yeah, basically that's kind of what my site is at this point, where it's just like everything's in a in a very distinct bokeh, and uh, yeah, I can't really see past like I say like six feet. It's really weird. Um, so yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm literally as this as this episode drops, um, I'm going to be wearing my. I'm going to be collecting my. My first pair of uh, prescription, well, not prescription, but like you know, just glasses. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll see how that <laughs> see how that goes. Um, I think I picked a decent uh, set of frames. They look pretty nice for me. Um, I, it was more about the shape, to be honest. Like I didn't want to go for a square one. I don't feel like I fit square uh, glasses, so I kind of went for like something rounded, but not like Harry Potter rounded. <laughs> not like a straight circle. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know. Kind of like a semi semicircle ish kind of thing, squircle. Let's just say that to use a uh, app icon terminology. Uh, but yeah, you know that was that's kind of weird. Um, you know, I got that quote unquote diagnosis on my mum mum's birthday. It hap- I I did it because I couldn't see Emily Sandes. Just a lot of signs there, obviously. And um, honestly, there were a lot of signs beforehand and like for years, and I kind of just allowed it. Um, but yeah, now it's just gone to a point where like I'm just. I literally just everything's in a slight blur or bokeh, and I'm just like fuck. It's just depressing to look at, and it makes my eyes water. Um, so yeah, your boy's gonna be wearing specs. Um, so that's gonna be interesting. I mean, I'm joining the rest of my family, so you know it's nothing. <laughs> I saw this coming. It was gonna happen someday. So uh, you know, guess uh, guess this uh, guess today is the day. And uh, also speaking of uh, the day. Um, day after this episode drops we'll have our first set of wg interviews coming through um also going to be dropping the same interview over at 5vpn radio so if you have spotify and you want to go peep the tunes of the artist i am interviewing nice little uh, you know just a, a, a different experience so to speak um go for that as well um either way whether it's 5pn radio or wg uh whatever feed you pick i will highly appreciate your spinning well, that said, got an episode here, got an episode to do, something a bit light these, this week, um, I, felt, I felt like I went a bit, uh, you know, kind of just um, deep, uh, kind of in the weeds last week, so uh, I purposely went for something a little bit lighter, so we have three music and uh, one comics, so without further ado, four minutes before we begin, email to ID, Discord link, all that, all that, all that, in the full show notes, please go peep the articles for yourself and support the writers that make this show possible. And when I said, let the beat drop, and let's get to the show. 
In a week where Microsoft buys Activision Blizzard for $75 billion, um, I wonder if that's going to like come with the uh, uh, kind of like a anti-competitive, uh, anti-compete, I forgot what the word is, but like, you know, m- monopoly kind of vibe going on there. Um, so, you know, who knows how, how that'll go down. Uh, ex-Tory Christian Wakeford defects to Labour. Meatloaf dies age 74. Nusret Ghani claims she was sacked as a minister uh, partly because of her... Qu- and this is, a, this is a genuine thing that she quoted, Muslimness. Um, so, shout out to good old Tory Islamophobia. And uh, a coup goes down in Burkina Faso. Uh, I think that's like the third one in Africa this year, in the continent of Africa this year. So... Uh, but yeah, we begin with the first of free music, and uh, this is all about Mr. Bob Marley. Um, and, well, specifically an exhibition, but the article specifically um, explores the thoughts from more of the point of view of Ziggy Marley. Um, obviously, son of Bob. And uh, yeah, it's obviously around the fact that there's, there's an exhibition, um, uh, Bob Marley exhibition going down in London uh, from February to the start of eight for the first week of April. Um, I'm so gonna be on that. I'm trying to sort out a day so me, my, so me, my pops, and maybe my boy David can come through as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's I can't I can't wait for that. It's gonna be so lit. Um, but yeah, if you're if you're in the you know if you have a free day during the month of February and April, you know just um go hit it up. You know I think I feel like it it looks really good. I've seen I've seen the hype for it. It looks really good. But this is this cycle. It's called uh, Bob Wouldn't Be Bob Without Rita, Ziggy Marley on His Mother and Father. Um, this is by Rob Walker uh, from The Guardian. So let's jump right in. Ziggy Marley was only eight years old when his mum and dad, the reggae great Bob Marley, uh, were shot in an apparent assassination attempt inside their home in Kingston, Jamaica. But he remembers it like yesterday. Quote, Cops came for his children in the middle of the night and carried us away to a secret hideaway up in the hills. No one really knew what was happening. It was scary, but it was kind of exciting, he says. Yet just two days later, on the 5th of December 1976, Bob Marley insisted on playing the Smile Jamaica concert at Kingston's National Heroes Park as planned, even though he had bullet wounds in his arm and chest. The gig was seen as a rallying cry for peace against the backdrop of Jamaican spiraling violence and political unrest, with 80,000 people watching Marley swagger his way through classics including Get Up Stand Up. For reggae fans, it's the stuff of legend, though uh, Though Ziggy insists his mother, who had been shot in the head on that night, deserves equal credit. Quote, she still showed up for the show, the same as he did. I'm proud of both my dad and my mum, because there's a teamwork going on between them. Bob wouldn't be Bob without Rita, you know what I'm saying? Unquote. Now 53, Ziggy is speaking uh, to the Observer on the eve of a new exhibition about his father's life and influences open at the Saatchi Gallery in London next month. Uh, it's the latest celebration of a singer who's four, who four decades after his death from cancer aged 36, wow, I forgot it was only 36, you know, uh, is still one of the best-selling nights in the world. His posthumous album, uh, posthumous greatest hits album, Legend, released in 1984, has spent more than 950 weeks in the UK Top 100 and has sold more than 25 million copies worldwide. The exhibition, which includes a giant vinyl installation of Legend, uh, Legend, I can't can't say Legend apparently, Legend, uh, is pitched as a, quote, multi-sensory experience, unquote, with numerous rooms and spaces, each highlighting different aspects of Marley's life. One room, for example, is designed as a forest with the sounds and smells of Jamaica, the visual backdrop to many of the songs. In another space, they have recreated a concrete urban landscape with huge art installations and there's even a mock-up of the backstage corridor of a Bob Marley and the Waiters concert. A silent disco, which they're calling the Soul Shakedown Studio, invites the visitors to don headphones and groove to a reggae dance party. I, I, I've, I don't think I've... I think, yeah, I have been... I think I've been in a silent disco before. I don't know. I, I just don't know. Like, just... It's, it's a weird concept. I just find it a bit weird. Like I, I, I'm sure everyone has the tunes in their heads going on, but I'm, a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a singer as I, as I spin. You know, what I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm jamming. I'm actually like, you know, throwing the lyrics out. And I don't want to be that guy where someone takes their headphones off and it's just me going, "Get this beat up." You know I find, I find, I find this guy's a bit weird. Uh, but the highlight of the show is arguably a collection of never seen images of Marley himself. 
Ziggy explains that they were discovered in the storage locker of a phot- of photographer Jean Bernard Sohez. S O H I E Z. So he's taking a guess on now. Who died last year, and whose two dozen photos are all seemingly taken on the same day in Kingston, more or less a year before Marley's death. They are unposed, candid shots. Some capturing the singer playing football, which he said is a great passion after his mu- after music. Quote: He was fanatical. Agrees Ziggy. It was a big part of his life and my life as a child around him. But it wasn't just about football. He loved all sports: boxing, running, table tennis. He was a sports guy, unquote. He would sometimes come to Ziggy's primary school and play against his teammates, he says, adding, quote, he was fast and he had a good kick, unquote. Uh, he laughs out loud at the idea his, dad, his dad's game uh, was on a pressure level, as friends who played with him have claimed. That was his aspiration, he quips. Uh, he thinks playing football was a way for Marley to alleviate some of the pressures of his day-to-day life. Uh, his dad was always in demand, he says, and sometimes it felt like everyone wanted a piece of him. Football helped him free his mind, he says. Uh, disturbed by the shooting at his home, Marley moved to London for a spell, living in the relative calm of 42 Oakley Street in Chelsea. It's there that he wrote one of his most enduring songs, Free Little Birds. Ziggy stayed on, stayed on in Jamaica along with the rest of his siblings. Marley had 11 acknowledged children, apparently. <laughs> acknowledged, I'd say acknowledged there. Uh, but claims he didn't miss his father during the separation, not because he didn't love him, but through necessity, he says, quote, uh, when you reflect back, you can feel sad, but in that moment, you've got to do what you got to do, he says. I had to go to school. There were a lot of things going on, so you just had to just get on with it, unquote. Uh, Ziggy, a nickname his dad gave him, meaning Little Spliff, uh, was 12 when Marley died. He even performed at a funeral, and in a wider sense, he got on with it all his adult life, carving his own niche and uh, as a top uh, recording artist. Uh, he's an eight-time Grammy Award winner, picking up Best Reggae Album seven times, most recently in 2017. Ziggy has a similar trench town accent to his father, although he's been living in Los Angeles with his wife, Orly, and uh, four children for around 15 years now. Quote, as my father used to say, my home is in my head, unquote. Uh, he knows he will never step completely out of his father's shadow, and he admits some people want him to be his father. Uh, there's always an expectation he, that he will do covers of Bob Marley songs in his live events, but that's something he says he's more than happy to do. Sometimes he, do, he does tours where he only sings his father's songs. He doesn't have a favourite one, but singles out a redemption song as, the song as the one that is closest to his heart. It's a song that was played a great deal around the time his father died, he says, and it meant so much to so many people. Quote, it carries a lot of emotional connection for me, unquote. And uh, just as a note, the Bob Marley One Love Experience at London Statue Gallery is uh, opening from the 2nd of February to the 18th of April. So, um, yeah, that's um, I'm definitely hitting that up. Trust me on that. Don't know when, don't know what day. It's going to happen, though. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to peep that. Um, maybe not a sign disco, but the rest of it. <laughs> the rest of it sounds pretty cool. And especially the photos, like... As um, you know, I've I've talked about a couple of times in the past, um, you know, a few months about you know just uh, my camera and just taking pictures and my uh, new uh, renewed um, energy for appreciating photography, um, uh, and yeah, I just I, I I I would find that particular room so fascinating. Just off the that shit just jumped off the page for me when I was when I was reading it. I was just like. Oh, I want to hit that room up so bad. Just hitting up though, especially those candid photos. Like, um, you know, I've recently uh, been seeing uh, the Universal Hip Hop Museum. Uh, you know, just gathering, uh, you know, archives as a, you know, because they're a museum and they're curating at the moment uh, as the building itself is being built uh, for the Hip Hop Museum. And um, you know, they've been dropping uh, photos of uh, you know just iconic hip hop photos and you know tagging the and, and tagging the photographers that did them, and I'm just like looking at their work, and I'm just like Jesus Christ, all of this stuff that I've been seeing for years, they would, they took those photos, and you know I don't think we do that enough where we, you know, look at the photographer and you're just like, damn, they took that photo, and we've seen that photo several times in like magazines or you know on YouTube videos or you know, you just see it everywhere in some fashion, um, but um, yeah, I just, I just. I find that uh, candid. Uh, I find the candid photos very fascinating. Like um, just that, 
snapshot in time of like where that person is at um you know the photo shoot stuff is interesting as well obviously um but it's the candid ones that really get to get to me personally and uh yeah i love i love that stuff so uh yeah but my one i've experienced um definitely gonna hit that up and uh you know good words from ziggy molly as well So we hop into the comics segment, and uh, yeah, so this is a very, very, very fascinating. You've seen the title. It's a very fascinating, uh, just uh, thing that the, the, this uh, this uh, guy, Mr. Douglas Walk, has uh, done. Um, he this is a uh, part of like I don't know if it's a um, a specific um, uh, what's the word? I don't think it's a specific uh, excerpt from his book, um, but it is a part. He is talking as I guess part of like promotion for his book. It's called All of the Marvels by Douglas Walk. Um, so yeah, if you want to go read that, give us give it a spin. But um, yeah, here's a I guess a I think it's I, I'm not sure if it's a excerpt or not. Um, it doesn't say whether, but um, it is by Douglas Walk. So maybe it is. So uh, regardless of that, it's called uh, I read all. 27,000 Marvel comics and had a great time. Here's what I learned. So let's jump in. Especially by the URL. Sometimes the URL just like, makes me laugh because it's just it's just hilarious. Like um, if if you, the URL is obviously the link that you know that people post, and this one has a uh, uh, you put what you're supposed to do as part of um, search engine optimization. Um, you're supposed to put like you know keywords in it so it gains better traffic. Obviously, stuff like the Guardian doesn't read really mal, I feel, but you know they still do it, and obviously you have to participate in that because if you don't, you're fucked because um, everyone else does it. Um, but this one has um, Douglas and this oh, has dashes in between everything, so you know obviously you won't say the dash, but Douglas Walk, uh, twenty-seven thousand Marvel Comics, Dark Reign, Trump, Iron Man, <laughs> Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. <laughs> So just off that makes me laugh. Um, so let's just jump right to that because I wouldn't know what that unbeatable squirrel girl is about. Uh, this should not be too hard, I thought, as long as I stay disciplined. All I have to do is read 27,000 comic books and then write about I, d- I had just signed a contract to write all of the Marvels, a book about reading every superhero story Marvel has published since 1961 as one single gigantic narrative. The Marvel story is omnipresent. His characters are everywhere, in movies, on television, even gracing shampoo bottles and bags of salad, yet also unknowable. Uh, it purports to be one big story. Any episode can refer to and be compatible with any earlier one, but not even the people telling the story have read the whole thing. That's not how it was meant to be experienced. I did not, however, read six decades of stories in order. That would have been unbearable, and it is one of the two mistakes Marvel curious readers often make. See, I want to stop there because I find that interesting because I I, I don't want to say I've recently started getting into comics. I've read a couple in the past like year or so, um, just just on a whim. Um, and I read like, uh, for example, like uh, Tonasi Kose's Black Panther, and that was like 2018 or 17 or whatever, right? Um, but I also have like the first Black Panther, right, from 60s or whatever it is, 70s. Um, so yeah, I didn't, I didn't start at the beginning, but I really thought I should have. I was just like, should I start at the beginning? Should I, should I do that and like do it from from like you know chronologically? Um, but I didn't. And uh, I guess in terms of what Walk says, I guess I did the right thing. So let's continue. Uh, it is a surefire route to boredom and frustration as the fun lies in following your whims. The other error is trying to cherry pick the greatest hits, the pivot wish single issues. Taken in isolation, uh, these are peaks without mountain ranges. Their dramatic power comes from their context. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Like single issues, that's, that's just, that's like listening to one song off an album and just like saying you listen to the album. That's just, that you're lying to yourself. Instead, I would go grazing, looking at whatever seemed most fun that day. The plot-dense 1980s Spider-Woman, then the monstru- monstrously huge dragon Fing Fan- Fin Fang Foom, followed by a bunch of 1970s romac- romance comics. They gave veteran cartoonists who had been drafted into the superior game a chance to get back uh, to their roots, specifically drawing young women wearing very fashionable clothes and crying. <laughs> I read the stories on couches, on the bus, on the treadmill. I read them as yellowing issues I had bought uh, when they were first published, scored at garage sales 
uh, as a kid or snagged from a discount bin at a convention as an adult. I read them in glossy, bashed paperbacks from the library and as gems borrowed from friends. I read a few from a stack of back issues uh, somebody banded on the table next to mine as I sat working in a Starbucks. I read a hell of a lot on a digital tablet. I did not attend uh, to read any at the Burning Man Festival in Nevada Desert on the summer of 2019. Uh, the only comics I had brought with me were copies to give away of 1998's X-Force number, seven, uh, number 75, in which the team attends the same event, transparently renamed Exploding Colossal Man. <laughs> oh, Exploding Colossal Man Festival, that's, that's great. But somebody uh, had set up a memorial shrine for Stan Lee, Marvel's longtime figurehead, and at its base there was a box labelled Read Me. It contained some battered but intact 50-odd issues of the amazing Spider-Man Thor and Tales of Suspense. What was I going to do? Not read them? Uh, and I had an absolutely great time. The best of Marvel comics, old and new, were as astonishing, thrilling, and imaginative as popular entertainment gets. That's a... That's a Interesting claim. Um, there was also plenty of sophomoric retrograde stuff rushed out to serve an audience of credulous kids or bloodthirsty nostalgics. I was often aware that I was gorging on something uh, that had only been made for snacking, indulging, the worst part of Collector's Impulse. Uh, the part that strives for completeness, just like the Beyonder in Secret Wars 2, uh, rather than enjoyment. Fortunately, by the time I had... Uh, by the time... By the time I had, by the time I'd waded in too far, okay, typo there, um, a useful transformation had come over me. I realised that I was able to find uh, something to enjoy in just about any issue. Uh, examples of certain creators' unique use of language or weird cultural references that could have appeared at no other moment. That may have been Stockholm Syndrome, I admit, uh, but when somebody recently asked me if I had actually read every issue of NFL Super Pro, a mercifully short-lived series about a super-powered American football player, I said, of course. And number 10 includes both a parody of the mytho mythopoetic men's movement of the early 1990s and a character whose power is literally to throw money at problems. Coins come flying out of his hands, unquote. Uh, the reading stage went on for longer than I thought it would. It turns out my brain can only handle so much a uh, gaudily coloured, hyper-violent soap opera uh, in a single day. The high point may have been wrestling with the thoughtful, exquisitely drawn yet problematic 1974-83 title Master of Kung Fu, which introduced the character of Shang-Chi, uh, who recently made it to the big screen. A taut, introspective espionage thriller whose antagonist is Fu Manchu. The series became, over time, the more impressive and for its racist portrayals, more wince-inducing. Now, I do wonder if Fu Manchu... I think I said this when I saw Shang-Chi uh, the, uh, uh, last year, that is Fu Manchu, like... Because obviously there's a, there's a facial hairstyle called Fu Manchu as well. So I'm wondering which, what came first. Um, because, yeah, if, if, if the character Fu Manchu came from... That came from the facial hairstyle, I mean, yeah, that's just a... I feel like one of many problems to do with that particular stretch of comics, but anyway... Uh, or it may have been rediscovering writer Chris Claremont's legendary 16-year run on Uncanny X-Men, uh, whose freaky inventiveness and compassion for its cast of mutants and outcasts made it the comics equivalent of David Bowie's career. Then there was the joy of reading Ryan North and Erica Henderson's disarmingly tender The Unbe Unbeatable Squirrel Girl series with my son. Uh, its protagonist has the, quote, proportional speed and strength of a squirrel. A quote, but her real power is a knack for creative non-violent conflict resolution, a rare quality in a superhero. The low point was definitely the week and a half I spent locking myself into a New York apartment, forcing myself to plough through 30 years of the blood-drenched adventures of my least favourite character, the Punisher, who has so far slaughtered upwards of a thousand drug dealers, security guards and the like. Brackets, I counted. I also developed a fascination with the extremely minor 1961 series Linda Carter, Student Nurse. It is not good by any reasonable standard, but it is remarkable as an example of Marvel's forgotten tiles from the 60s about ordinary young women and how their characters and tone were absorbed into the superhero line. His protagonist turned up again a, de a decade later in the cast of even shorter-lived Night Nurse. Night Nurse! Sorry, I had to sing that, Greg. Whenever I see Greg, uh, uh, Night Nurse, uh, yeah, I have, to, I have to blast out that Greg. Yeah, he's, uh, and again in the 2000s as a nurse who runs a secret medical clinic for injured superheroes. 
For a while, she also dated Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme, who lived in New York's Greenwich Village. Uh, I, I assume that's, uh, they say Greenwich over there, so I'm, I'm not sure. Greenwich. Um, <laughs> it's Greenwich. And is due to appear on screens this year in Doctor Strange, uh, the Multiverse of Madness. Uh, which apparently is three hours, and I don't know about that, Chief. Like, there's like, uh, why is every film like? Is it, is it just me? Is it me or like is mad films like mad long these days? Is it is it me? Is it am I being like the millennial that you know has, his, has whose attention span is just like subconsciously lowered? I'm not sure. But anyway, I saved myself a fine dessert. The last title I checked off my spreadsheet was Thunderbolts, the long-running, constantly mutating, gleefully perverse series about a team of supervillains masquerading as superheroes who do very good things for very bad reasons. As I had hoped, I gradually got a sense of the grand, accidental shape of the Marvel story and the way it reflected its times. Once you see Iron Man as a 60-year uh, running commentary on the US military, uh, US's military-industrial industri- complex, you cannot unsee it. From the protesters picketing Tony Stark's weapons plant in the 1970s to the drone technology he deploys in the 2000s, I noticed Black Panther's curious history, how the gorgeous concept of Wakanda's African home evolved from dozens of writers and artists improvising on each other's inventions over a decade, from the Afro-technological utopia of that fictional nation's first appearance in 1966, to the political intrigue added in the 1970s, and the regional factions that debuted in the late 1990s. The writing process also took longer than I figured it would, Turns out it's not as easy to get a solid grip on a story more than half a million pages long. <laughs> Fuck. Um, that's crazy to think about. Uh, after finishing an initial version, I ended up scrapping it almost completely and starting over. What made everything eventually click was realising I could be a tour guide for readers. The last stage of writing went painfully slowly. During the awful months when the pandemic overlapped overslapped, imagine, uh, with Donald Trump's presidency, uh, but my immersion in the Marvel story had become a useful lens even in that moment. It became clear that Dark Reign, uh, spelled R-E-I-G-N, uh, with its interlinked storylines that appeared in 2009 had been unnervingly prescient, uh, both about what a totali- to- totalitarian monster rising to power in the US might look like, in this case the ultra-wealthy, uh, mediagenic, commercially cruel Norman Osborn, aka Spider-Man's old arch-enemy, the Green Goblin, and what might bring him down, the reunion of a fractured coalition, here in the form of the Avengers, as well as some smart rep- rep- reportage? Report? Reportage? I forget how to say it. Uh, I refuse to claim that there is some kind of canon of essential issues that everyone can enjoy. There is no such thing. What I, what I can do is offer pathways into the mountain of Marvel and suggest perspectives from which the, that enormous story can offer the joy for which it was designed. A 1966... It's like 1966 issue of Fantastic Four that shows the frantic inventiveness of Jack Kirby and Lee in their golden era. A decade-spanning cluster of Thor and Loki comics that provide an ingenious meditation uh, on fiction, myth, and lies. A set of Vietnam War-era issues that chart the evolution of Marvel's relationship with politics. Uh, You want to know my favourite characters? I am not going to tell you because it doesn't matter. What I care about is giving you the tools to find your own, and yeah, I mean that's kind of it's kind of fascinating. Like I, I've, there's actually a podcast called um, Cerebro, um, which if you if if you know exactly what that word means, um, you know you can you can kind of guess where I'm going to go with this. It's basically a podcast um, that uh, basically it goes through every uh, it's tasking itself to go through every uh, character in X Men in the X-Men universe, and basically, like, uh, give a full breakdown of their story, their comic runs, and, uh, you know, where they're featured, and their powers, and, uh, and you know, all the other stuff, basically a whole storyline of them, and then they spend, uh, like, an hour and a half, or two hours, even, uh, you know, some, some of the episodes are, like, three hours, uh, just gushing over the character, um, that one character, and, um, you know, I haven't gotten into it too deep, um because i want to kind of like focus on it but um yeah i i have this thing where like there's some podcasts i like to listen to actually and focus on and then there's podcasts i'm fine with in the background and uh because i have podcasts that are more time uh time sensitive um i listen to those first and then i end up like not listening to cerebro (laughs) so i still have it there it's sitting there in my podcast list um podcast uh, library 
Um, but yeah, I haven't gotten into it. And also the episodes are mad long. Like, you know, I don't mind long episodes and stuff. But two hours on like one X-Men character has just been mad. And, uh, you know, some of them I care about, some of them I honestly don't. Um, but I still want to be, I'm still very completionist of that mindset. So um, one day I'll get into it. But yeah, stuff like that fascinates the fuck out of me. Like, um, um, there's always there's always been something about geek culture that I just, um, that is so alluring. Um, and obviously it's gotten more mainstream these days, right? Where, you know, well, hello, superhero movies are the shit now. You know what I mean? So, and that's geek culture, right? Um, you know, uh, the, the fact that everyone's gassing over Andrew Garfield all of a sudden is just jarring to me. That's a bit of a side note. Uh, but getting back to the point, uh, yeah, I've, I mean, big up Douglas on that front, man. Like, just uh, actually completing the task, first of all. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if I could do it. I don't know if I could do that kind of thing. Um, that's why I'm kind of, like, half... I, I'm keeping, like, half a foot in comics and not really, like, diving into it, really. Because I feel like, you know, I come from watching TV and, like... Uh, I watch like whole TV series, you know, just to just to see them, right, and just to know, I just to say I've I've watched them all. Like there's there's only some where I've just stopped, I've I've not watched um, after like halfway through. Like if I'm watching a series of something, I want to finish that series at least. Maybe not the whole TV show because if it's like um you know Law and Order, I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna watch fifty seasons of Law and Order. You know, I I did watch like the first season, funny enough, but I stopped there because I was just like, this this is way too big of a way too big of a mountain for me to fuck with at this point. But I did watch the first season. You know, with Chris Noth and uh, uh, I forgot I forgot Homeboy. Um, yeah, I forgot I forgot his name. Um, but yeah, them. Um, but yeah, shout out to Douglas on that front, man. That's a extreme. That's an extreme achievement, and. Honestly, I low-key might peep the book. I might peep the book someday. Who knows? Because um, just just, uh, just to, you know, shout to Marvel Comics like, in general because like, there, there's some fucking crazy stuff in there. Like, um, at my at my minor glance and, like, of uh, shout to Comics Explained on YouTube of, like, um, he, he explains, like, Rob of uh, Comics Explained. He explains such good... He, he, he does it in such good detail. Like, he, he gives you, like, um he can give you a whole breakdown. He has, like, uh, I think one of his most popular videos is, like, um, a full breakdown of the comic uh, series of, uh, like, Infinity War. And he just breaks it all down. Uh, and that shit's, like, two, three hours. So, yeah, if you, wanna, if you want, like, a video version of that kind of thing, Comics Explained, shout to Rob on that front. Like, there's crazy, there's some good stuff on there. Um, I love his... Um, I love his Beyond Omega level uh, uh, series. That's, that's very fascinating. Or just like how dumb powerful some superheroes are. It's just it's just laughable sometimes. It's just like, oh yes, he could do this. It's just like, yeah, he's clearly Beyond Omega level. It's just like, okay, <laughs> thanks for that. <laughs> Question answered as soon as like names his powers. But um, anyway, I'm going back and forth for, for a lot of things. But uh, yeah, man, it, it, it does fascinate me, like the whole thing. Um, not to the point where I can dedicate you know a chunk of my life to reading nearly uh, what does he say half a million pages not that deep for me um I, i'd admit but i do appreciate when somebody comes through with just like really good energy on just like how passionate they are about things and not just the movies right you know people can watch the movies i've watched the movies okay and i'm not that deep into marvel right i just watch the movies with my pops because we enjoy going to the movies together and you know that's unfortunately what's on these days we've talked about that before on this show but anyway um but yeah man, i'll just um so people people coming through people with that kind of energy of that completionist energy i love that when it comes to anything geek culture like comics games i don't know it just it just it just fascinates the hell out of me to be like that kind of that kind of memory bank of just like oh yeah i've pe- i've i've uh, spun um you know the unbeatable squirrel girl I don't know, it's just fascinating to me to, to get into that kind of stuff and uh, be fully invested in it. Where I could say, go touch some grass, but in some cases I just, um, I'm just like, good on you bro, good on you.
So we hop into our second music segment, and uh, this is all about, well, the title is simply put, Is Old Music Killing New Music? Uh, mu- music. I-, I went Baltimore there. Music. Uh, music. Uh, <laughs> so this, is, this is a piece by uh, Ted... Gioia? G- Goia? I'm so sorry. This is horrible of me. <laughs> I can't say I can't say his name properly, but um, yeah, G-I-O-I-A. Um, this is via The Atlantic. And uh, yeah, this is just interesting, um, just a really interesting uh, just a thought piece about uh, old music and new music. Um, I keep saying music, music, music. Uh, let's get into it. Uh, old songs now represent 70% of the US music market, according to the latest numbers from MRC Data. A music, a music analytics firm. Uh, those who make a living from new music, uh, especially, especially that endangered species known as the working musician, should look at these figures with fear and trembling. Uh, but the news gets worse. The new music market is actually shrinking. All the growth in the market is coming from old songs. That's interesting to think about, just like on the face, because I peep new music um, all the time. Right. That's, that's kind of my thing at this point, where like I'm, I'm spinning at least like, five new records a week on average right um so to say to him to him to say that and especially in this day and age where like anybody can drop an album i don't know it's it's interesting that he says that but anyway the 200 most popular new tracks now regularly account for less than five percent of total streams that rate was twice as high just three years ago the mix of songs mix of songs actually purchased by consumers is even more uh, tilted towards older music uh, the current list of most downloaded tracks on iTunes filled with the names of bands from the previous century, such as Credence, Clearwater Revival, and The Police. What chart are you looking at for Credence, Clearwater Revival? Okay, sorry. Continue on. Uh, I encountered this phenomenon myself recently at a retail store, where the youngster at the cash register was singing along with Sting on Message in a Bottle, a hit from 1979, as it blasted on the radio. A few days later, I had a similar experience at a local diner, uh, where the st- entire staff was under 30, but every song was more than 40 years old. I asked my server, why are you playing this old music? She looked at me in surprise before answering, oh, I like these songs. Never before in history have new tracks attained hit status while generating so little cultural impact. In fact, the audience seems to be embracing the hits of, part of decades past instead. Success was always short-lived in the music business, but now even new songs that become bona fide hits can pass unnoticed by much of the population. Only songs released in the past 18 months get classified as quote-unquote new in the MRC database, so people could conceiv- conceivably be listening to a lot of two-year-old songs rather than six-year-old ones, but I doubt these old playlists uh, consist of songs from the year before last. Even if they did, the fa- that fact would still represent a rep- repudiation of the pop culture industry, which is almost entirely focused on what's happening right now. Every week I hear from hundreds of publicists, record labels, band managers and other professionals who want to hype the newest new thing. Their livelihoods depend on it. The entire business model of the music industry is built on promoting new songs. As a music writer, I'm expected to do the same. As are radio stations, retailers, DJs, nightclub owners, editors, playlist curators and everyone else with skin in the game. Yet all the evidence indicates that few listeners are paying attention. Uh, consider the recent uh, reaction when the Grammy Awards were postponed. Perhaps I should say the lack of reaction, because the cultural response was little more than a yawn. I follow thousands of music professionals on social media, and I didn't encounter a single expression of annoyance or regret that the biggest annual event in new music... New music? I keep I, I, I don't know why I keep saying that now. I, I don't know if I'm just like intentionally tripping up myself. Uh, new music. Music. Uh, had been put on hold. I do like how Baltimore people say it. Music. Uh, had been put on hold. That's ominous. Can you imagine how angry fans would be if the Super Bowl or NBA Finals were delayed? That's a great point, man. It's actually, that's a really great point. People would riot in the streets, but the Grammy Awards go missing in action and hardly anyone notices. The declining TV audience for the Grammy show underscores this shift. Uh, in 2021, uh, viewership for the ceremony collapsed 53% from the previous year from 18.7 million to 8.8 million. It was the least watched Grammy broadcast of all time. Even the core audience for the new music uh, couldn't be bothered. About 98% of people ages, ages uh, 18 to 49 had something better to do than watch the biggest music celebration of the year. 
A decade ago, 40 million people watched the Grammy Awards. That's a meaningful audience, but now the devoted fans of this event are starting to resemble a tiny subculture. More people pay attention to streams of video games on Twitch, which now gets 30 million daily visitors, or the latest reality TV show. In fact, musicians would probably do better getting placement in Fortnite than singing a record deal, signing a record deal in 2022. At least they would have access to a growing demographic. Now, we've talked about that before. Um, there was an article, I remember, of this similar ilk, where, like, uh, it was talking about how Travis Scott, uh, this was, like, late, early last year, actually, uh, it was, like, Travis Scott, you know, doing the Fortnite uh, event, and it was basically talking about that, and how, like, um, you know, these are where the youths are, and how video games basically are taking, uh, are taking over the mainstream of, uh, or the eyes of the, of the youth, and, it, and, you know, this kind of adds to it, I guess, that's a, uh, Definitely adds uh, to the fire, for, for sure. Uh, some would like to believe that this trend is just short, a short-term blip. Perhaps caused by the pandemic. When clubs open up again and DJs start spinning new records at parties, the world will return to normal, or so we're told. The hottest songs will again be the newest songs. I'm not so optimistic. A series of unfortunate events are conspiring to marginalise new music. The pandemic is one of these ugly facts, but hardly the only contributor to the growing, to the growing crisis. Consider these other trends, these are bullet points. Uh, the leading area of investment in the music business is old songs. Investment firms are getting into bidding wars to buy publishing catalogs from ageing rock and pop stars. And that is factual. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for an article to actually explain why this is happening at such a rate. Um, you know, I think the most latest one was... Uh, uh, was it Bob Dylan? Um, Sent off music songwriting rights um, and music rights to different companies. Um, so, yeah, yeah, you know, Bowie... Springsteen now, um, so many, and and they're all doing it like around this time. It's really weird. Um, it, it, yeah, I don't know. It's really jarring. I, I need to. I want to know why this is happening. Like, it's not like these people are running out of money, or if they're you know, or if it's their people's estate, then you know they can make that decision. I guess I don't know if they're running. Yeah, it's not a matter of running out of money, is it? Like, is they just stop caring. Um, but anyway, the the songs catalogs. In most demand are by musicians who are in their 70s or 80s, Bob Dylan, Paul Simon, Springsteen, or already dead, such as James, David Bowie and James Brown. Even major record labels are participating in the rush to old music. Uh, Universal, Sony, Warner, and other others are buying up publishing catalogs and investing huge sums in old tunes. In a previous time, that money would have been used to launch new artists. Facts. The best selling physical format in, the, in, in, in music is the vinyl LP, which is more than 70 years old. I've seen no signs that the record labels are investing in newer, better alternative because here too, old is viewed as superior to new. Now that's a little bit different. I feel, I feel, I feel that's a that's a little bit different as a vinyl copper. Like you know, I do that. I personally do it. Uh, a to support um, you know the artists I really enjoy because obviously streaming doesn't do that anymore, or as, as never streaming has never done that um, sufficiently. Uh, um, obviously. So I feel like you know, copying a vinyl is the best is the best thing I can do, and you know, and also beneficial for me since I can copy it and you know get a record player and play it. Um, obviously, I can do it on my phone, but I don't know, man. I just, I just, I just, what can I say? I like the I like the old school style of it, um, but that doesn't mean I don't listen to new music, right? I don't think that adds to the argument. But anyway, um, in fact, record labels open a source a of innovation. Once a source of innova uh, innovation, sorry, in consumer products, don't spend any money on research and development to revitalize their business. Although every other industry looks to innovation for growth and consumer excitement, that's also a fact. That's definitely a fact, um, and that's definitely adding to it. Record labels are um, the music industry is the most antiquated uh, uh, art form, art business uh, adjacent to an art form. Uh, you know, going right now. Film is, you know, a little bit ahead of it. Uh, film and TV is a bit ahead of it. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, music is way behind, way behind on that front. Um, there was a good quote by Issa Rae recently saying, like, um, yeah, I wouldn't want to be in the music industry because from my re my little experience in it, which she obviously has in, like, a, I think uh, you know, she has a record label, a radio, is it radio? Or, yeah, I think it's radio. Um, yeah, she doesn't like it. So, you know, it's come from a decent source. Uh, record stores are caught up in the same time warp in an earlier era. They aggressively marketed new music, but now they make more money from vinyl reissues and used LPs. 
reissues is a de- is an actual good shout. Um, you know, I feel like reissues are, and I guess that adds to it. Um, I pro- I should probably retract my earlier point about L- about vinyls because reissues are definitely a thing, and we've talked about that before on this show. Uh, talked about that on Nisos as well, I think. Uh, yeah, reissues are a thing, and uh, they're big thing. They're a big thing. Like the con- I I constantly see vinyl reissues, and I just like. I just orgasm over it. Like, it just sound, it just, they look so fucking good. Um, but anyway. And they're cheaper. And they're honestly cheaper than, you know, first edition Michael Jackson from the 70s. Right? You know what I mean? It's just, it just, it just makes more sense to buy, for, to pay 40 quid for a reissue. Box fresh, looks clean, um, you know, uh, new, new stuff done to it. You know what I mean? Just new additions to it. Why would, why would you do that instead of buying like the, uh, uh, first edition off the wall, right? Obviously, you have the first edition, I guess, and that's cool. It's a nice memento, but you know, does it play? Does it play well? Probably not. Anyway, uh, radio stations are contributing to the stagnation, putting fewer song, putting fewer new songs in onto their reg- rotation, or judging by the offerings on my satellite radio lineup, completely ignoring new music in favor of old hits. I have no opinion to that because I don't spin radio anymore, and uh, I feel like. Um, on the US front, it's probably different than UK. Um, you know, I feel like Radio One, One Extra, Capital, they still do, you know, the hits. Um, you know, but then again, I go to Kistry if I have to go to a radio station. So that's me. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, I don't know if I'm the outlier or not. Uh, when a new song comes, uh, overcomes these obstacles and actually becomes a hit, the risk of copyright lawsuits is greater than ever before. The risks have increased enormously since the Blurred Lines jury decision of 2015, and the result is that additional cash gets transferred from today's musicians to old or deceased artists. Adding to the nightmare, dead musicians are now coming back to life in virtual form via holograms and deepfake music, making it all the harder for young living artists to compete in the marketplace. As record labels lose interest in in new music, uh, emerging performers uh, desperately search for other ra- other ways to get exposure. They hope to place their self-produced tracks on a curated streaming playlist or license their songs for use in advertising or the closing credits of a TV show. Those options might generate some royalty income, but they do little to build uh, name recognition. You might hear a cool song on a TV commercial, but do you even know the name of the artist? Good point. Uh, you know that's what that's what Shazam's there for. For me personally, like I I I, I put auto sh- when I watch Snowfall, Auto Shazam. Just just put my phone next to it, Auto Shazam, because they put some fucking gems all over that show. Um, so shout to, shout to Snowfall. Uh, you know uh, you love your workout playlist at the health club, but how many song titles and band names do you remember? You stream a Spotify a new music playlist in the background while you work, but did you bother to learn who's singing the songs? Decades ago, the composer Eric Satie, Satie uh, warned of the arrival of furniture music, a kind of songs that would blend, a kind of song that would blend seamlessly into the background of our lives. His vision seems closer to reality than ever. That's an amazing point. Wow, there are so many good points here that I've actually never thought about. That's a great point. Um, uh, some people, especially baby boomers, tell me that this decline uh, in the popularity of new music is simply the result of lousy new songs. Mm, yeah, I, I, I can. I, I mean. I say I listen to new music, right? Um, I listen to, like I said, five uh, five on average. And I do. I'm not lying about that. But there are some, like, you know, just guaranteed charts I just don't bother listening to. Um, you know, I don't. I didn't listen to the Drake or Kanye record last year. Didn't bother. Didn't bother. Um, so that that might be a good point. Um, yeah, might definitely a feasible point anyway. Uh, the old songs had better melodies, more interesting harmonies, and demonstrated genuine musicianship, musicianship not just software loops, auto-tuned vocals, and regurgitated samples. Mm, okay. There will never be another Songheim, they they tell me, or Joni Mitchell, or Bob Dylan, or Cole Porter, or Brian Wilson. I almost expect these doomsayers to break out in a certain edition of old-time rock and roll, much like Tom Cruise in his underpants. Just take those records off, but sure. I didn't listen to uh, I can. I didn't know why I had to do that. Uh, I can understand the frustrations of music lovers who get no satisfaction from current mainstream songs, though they try and uh, though they try it and they try. I also lament the lack of imagination on many modern hits, but I disagree with my boomer friend's larger verdict. I listen to two or three hours of new music every day, and I know that plenty of exceptional young musicians are out there trying to make it. Uh, trying to make it, they exist. But the music industry has lost its ability to discover and nurture their talents. Facts. 
that's me saying facts. Uh, the music industry, music industry bigwigs have plenty of excuses for their inability to discover and adequately promote great new eyes. The fear of copyright, law, copyright lawsuits has made my made many in the industry definitely afraid of listening to unsolicited demo recordings. If you're a demo today, you might get sued for stealing this melody or maybe just this rhythmic groove five years from now. Try mailing a demo to a label producer and watch it return unopened. Uh, the people whose livelihood depends on discovering new musical talent face legal risk if they take their job seriously. Uh, that's one of the de- deleter- deleterious deleterious. That's a great that's a great word. What's, how do you say that? Deleterious deleterious. Interesting. Uh, results of the music industry's over reliance on lawyers and litigation. Uh, a hard ass approach uh, they once hoped would cure all problems, uh, all their problems, but now more does more harm than good. Everybody suffers in this litigious uh, environment, except for the partners of the entertainment law firms who enjoy the abundant fruits of all these lawsuits and legal threats. The problem goes deeper than uh, just copyright concerns. The people running their music music industry have lost confidence in new music. They won't uh, admit it publicly. That they like that would like be like the priests of Jupiter and Apollo in ancient Rome admitted that their gods are dead. <laughs> Even if they know it's true, their job titles won't allow such humble, abject confession. Yeah, that is exactly what's happening. The moguls have lost their faith in the redemptive and life-changing power of new music. How sad is that? Of course, the decision makers need to pretend that they still believe in the future of their business and want to discover the next revolutionary talent, but that's not what they really think. Their actions speak much louder than their empty words. Uh, how long have I got of this? Wow, this is long. <laughs> um, I don't know what to do now. There's, uh, there's, I've got a couple more... Uh, uh, I've got a lot more paragraphs to go, but... Um, yeah, for sake of time, let me cut through to the to near the end because there's a lot of um, this whole article is great, uh, but I, I I didn't I didn't expect it for me to take this long reading it. I'm gonna leave it at that uh, for the sake of time. Uh, I feel like the point's been made and uh, the rest of it is just a uh, general commentary. Um, but yeah, it's that was, that was amazing. Like that's probably one of the best things I've read this year so far. It's only January um real thought provoking uh i definitely want to think about this some more because uh i'm gonna add this to my just uh thoughts do that i regularly have um because yeah that's that's crazy thing about like uh with everything going on as pertains to being the nice i can i don't i don't i wouldn't want to be a music artist like I, I just, there's just nothing i find uh equitable about it um unless you're like totally independent and even with that said that requires to start ton of work um that you have to do and uh you're bound to like need a team that care about as much as you and yeah that's just um that's absurd to think about but anyway man uh shout out to ted that's a crazy crazy piece um go give the rest of that a read um and yeah man another addition to the thoughts do the existential thoughts do that i continually have in my head So finish on the final music segment and uh, we started with an exhibition and we're going to end with an exhibition. Um, so this one is a two-pack exhibition uh, It's going down in Los Angeles, United States. Um, this is an article uh, via The Undefeated uh, by Mr. Justin Tinsley and it's called New Two-Pack Shakur Exhibit Wake Me When I'm Free Looks at the Revolution They Created the Revolutionary. So let's jump right in. Taking a virtual tour of Wake Me When I'm Free, an interactive exhibit uh, on Tupac Shakur uh, that opens Friday in Los Angeles, I couldn't stop thinking about an interview Shakur gave to the B- to BET's Ed Gordon a month before he was shot multiple times at New York's Quad Studios and convicted of sexual assault the following day. Quote, If I can't live free, if I can't live with the same respect as the next man, I don't want to be here because God has cursed me to see what life should be like, he said in, he said in 9- October 94. Uh, just because I don't have uh, nothing to pass around to let people put money in the bucket doesn't mean I ain't doing God's work. These ghetto kids ain't God's children because I don't see no missionaries coming through here, coming through there. I'm doing God's work, unquote. Two years later, Shakur, only 25, would die in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas 
Well, I'm the same age as the Tupac when he died. Crazy. Um, since then, the legacy of one of rap's most foremost rap's foremost artists rested largely in the hands of Afini Shakur, Shakur's mother. Uh, she was deeply involved when conversations began six years ago about an exhibit to examine the meaning of his art and his activism, how he was doing God's work. Afin Shakur's death in 2016, coupled with watershed events such as the coronavirus pandemic and the global response to the murder of George Floyd by police, pushed deadlines, but also prepared us to see the full context of his life. When it came to Shakur's analysis of the black experience in America, he seemingly had a poem, an interview, a song, or a soundbite for everything. Quote, Afini passing was the gut punch of gut punches. This is a different exhibit if she's still here, uh, but I'm glad it's taken this long because every time it's gone better, says Aaron Sachs, uh, the exhibit's producer and president of Kinfolk Entertainment Plus Media. Uh, we think the messaging just got better. The goal, Sachs said, uh, was uh, to, not to create a merely a hip-hop exhibit. Uh, the trajectory of Shakur's musical career is well known. While Wake Me When I'm Free explores Shakur's time in the studio, the works produced and the controversy, controversy they courted uh, is true intention is peeling back the layers on his early life and its revolutionary roots. One of the, the first images that visitors will see when they enter the canvas, uh, the venue housing 20, the 25,000 square foot exhibit in LA's LA Life District, uh, is a 12 by 8 foot image of Nefertiti. Shakur had, tattooed, uh, had it tattooed on his chest in honour of his mother, and all that uh, he thought the symbol of a st- of strong black woman uh, is represent uh, of strong black women represented. Across the lobby are examples of his other tattoos. For instance, uh, fifty oh the dashes. I'm assuming it's niggas. Uh, referred to Shakur's belief that if one black person from every state joined with him, that he and black folks black folks as a whole would be stronger than AK-47. His most well-known tattoo, Thug Life, inked on his stomach, was an acronym for The Hate You Give Little Infants Fuck Everybody. Uh, I actually didn't know that. Every 15 minutes or so, uh, visitors can expect a large rose to appear on a wall and a door will open, leading them into the next room. The sound of gunshots and police sirens ripple across the room as wall-to-wall screens rotate images of what Shakur saw and read with his own eyes. A three and a half minute video narrated by Shakur himself appears on every screen in the room. Uh, images of black people hung from trees, police brutality, and other examples of American injustice to black bodies accompany his words. Uh, quote, he, who he is is not just rap, Sachs said. If we can blow that all away, we can clean the slate, unquote. From there, different galleries uh, provide deeper context into not only Shakur's life, uh, but the revolutionary life he was born into. A large part of the exhibit focuses on the theme Shakur, whom many involved uh who many involved in the in Wake Me When I'm Free's production uh, say produce light bulb moments, an exploration of the 1971 Panther 21 trial in which Afini Shakur and 20 others were acquitted, consumes much of this portion of the gallery. Uh, the exhibit includes a sculpted black fist surrounded by 350 handcuffs, one for each year in prison that Afini Shakur was facing for charges of conspiring to bomb department stores and murder police officers. Only a few artifacts exist from Shakur's childhood, uh, but there but there are large recreations of certain items, such as a tricycle a, a young Tupac used to ride around during P- uh, Black Panther meetings, or a ten-foot stack of New York Times newspapers. Afini Shakur would have ha- would have her son read front to back as punishment and report back with his findings and opinions on current events, or a giant jar of peanut butter placed beside a stack of televisions. Black uh, Panther cubs like Tupac. We're told to smear the peanut butter on doorknobs, sink handles, and other surfaces that law enforcement might examine for fingerprints. He was a child experiencing a revolution. Shakur's musical calling comes in a focus uh, a little more than halfway through the tour. Quote, we had to establish who he was in full person before that, Sack said. A room dedicated to all, his, all of his written work is uh, probably where most people will spend the bulk of their time. It includes approximately 20, 280 pieces of paper in Shakur's signature handwriting, from screenplays to poems to early songs. Screenplays, you say? Uh, coming out of that gallery, the influence of television, music, and movies comes into play. The visitors stand in 18-year-old Shakur's shoes, uh, firmly planted at crossroads. At the very beginning of his musical career, Shakur had a decision to make. He could advance up the ranks of the new African Panthers, or he could take a contract with Shock G of the, digi- of the group Digital Underground. Uh, Shakur's explanation for going the route he did is that he wants to create a platform and come back to the Panthers and truly make a difference. 
all around the visitor uh, are relics uh, of his movie, school lockers from Juice, his character Lucky's mail truck from Poetic Justice, and 1994's Above the Rim. So are his albums such as Tapacalypse Now, Strictly Film My N-I-G-G-A-Z, and Thug Life Volume 1. All the chaos of his meteoric rise to rap superstar and public enemy number one is there. Uh, the exhibit features a prison experience, bringing to the light she calls time in the maximum security penitentiary in 1995 for sex- sexually abusing a fan, Ayanna Jackson, in his hotel, in ni- uh, hotel room in 93. She called denied, being, uh, denied taking part in Jackson's assault for the remainder of his life. Uh, time in prison not only changed the court, it altered the course of rap history. For sex, it was important to document every twist and turn of Shakur's life. Quote, and anyone who spent time in prison will have a visual reaction to this. Uh, Sachs noted the sounds of prison doors slamming closed and inmates yelling. Recreations of three different jail cells reflect the impact of the prison industrial complex on his family. In one cell sits a letter from Rafini Shakur demanding nourishment from the jail he's, she's housed in uh, while carrying, uh, whilst trying to carry her unborn son to a full term. The second breaks down Shakur's time in prison, why he went, mental and physical abuse suffered as a result, uh, brackets, prison guard will perform extra cavity searches on him. And uh, last is a cell, vid- cell featuring a video from Shakur's 1995 prison interview just weeks before his release. It is Tupac Shakur at the height of his fame and perhaps his most clear-minded and focused. Alas, this version of him would not define the last 11 months of his life. Uh, once he signed to Death Row Records and began waging all-out war with former friend Notorious B.I.G., Sean Puffy Combs and Bad Boy Records. After he got out of prison in the fall of 95, the remainder of Shakur's life is well documented. Can-Am Studios, where he went to begin uh, recording All Eyes on Me, is recreated. Behind the glass of the studio runs a loop of clips uh, of Shakur recording at a blistering pace. Then come three of the most fascinating moments of the tour. First, a hallway overpopulated by scripts, call sheets, birthday party and video show invitations, plane tickets, Versace wardrobes and more. These are artifacts from every day of the last 11 months of Shakur's life. The last item we see before turning the corner is the key to his room at the Luxor Hotel in Las Vegas where he had his fiancée, Kid- Kidada Jones, uh, where we're, we're staying, we're staying, we're staying at the night uh, of, of uh, September 7th, 1996. And then we're showing the famous uh, euthanasia chain uh, he was uh, wearing at the time of his shooting. Quote, we're not trying to solve the murder, but he fulfilled his contract, death row. He creates the production company Euthanasia, Success. Uh, what everyone sees is what everyone is doing now with TV and businesses uh, he was attempted to do then the power behind the chain is where his life was about to go it represents to him a newfound creative freedom unquote. by the end of the tour I return to that quote that had taught me since the onset if I can't live free if I can't live with the same respect as the next man then I don't want to be here Shakur was one of the peerless orators of the 20th century one who has never afforded the time to see his vision his worldview and his own maturity evolve and expand in the 21st. What would you have to say about the world today for many men, women and children who will take the exhibit in the coming days and months still aren't free? Shakur, is still, Shakur still isn't either. The fight for freedom he understood would last far longer than his own life. Oi, gosh. It's a powerful end, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean... Uh, there's actually there was um there was a fact I learned it's minorly tangential but there's a there's a fact I learned about um uh museums in London and how many there are there are actually like like hundreds and I think thousands of museums in in the in in, the, in London alone um and I kick I, every time uh, every time I, the, the the when I saw that when I when I was presented with that fact on like a YouTube video about like uh, I think it was a YouTube video about art um about like three uh, people that had like uh, artworks in London. Um, once I learned that fact, I was just like, "Damn, how much like, how much of this kind of this kind of stuff am I missing?" You know, like how much how much stuff of the on the level of storytelling, visual storytelling, and depth am I missing? You know, like how much am I missing? And you know, I you 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 probably gain that. Uh, you probably gain that. Um, you could gain that with the comics, right? You can get going back to the comics. You know, there's twenty-seven thousand Marvel comics. You're you're, you're definitely going to miss something, right? Uh, TV series. Going back to that, you know, I'm missing something with Law and Order, clearly. Um, but you know, I just there's just, there's, 
you only got some time, so much time in the world, and you can dedicate it to only so many things. Um, and you know, I'm not a, I, I don't, you know, I, I've, I, when was the last time I've been to a museum? Uh, probably a couple of years ago. Well, definitely a couple, definitely a, at least two years ago. Um, so yeah, you know, it's, um, it's weird. It's weird how that, how that, how, how. I don't know if you guys get into that mindset, but I, I do a lot of the time where, you know, I, I, I spin something. Like I, I, for one of the interviews I'm about to drop um, in the next, uh, hopefully the next few weeks, uh, I was listening to this person's discography and it's like dumb long, right? And I was just like diving into it and I'm just like, bro, I've been missing this since like, I've been, I've been missing out on this for a while. And luckily I had the opportunity to get back, get to catch up, right? But you don't get that opportunity um, in a lot of ways, right? Um, a friend, a shout out to Tyler, he asked me, for my top 10 uh, R&B albums of all time, my personal favourites. And I was just like, I was thinking about it, and I was like, cur- I was like, you know, slapping together a list, and I was just like, bro, there are so many R&B albums I haven't spun. Like, there are classics I haven't touched yet. And uh, I don't know when I'm going to make time for them, you know what I mean? So, um, getting back to the point, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I probably won't be able to, you know, experience this yet. Um, you know, if, if, I, if I make a, Maybe if I, you know, f- laser focus to try and make a pilgrimage to LA just to see this one exhibit, um, then sure. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's weird how that has weird how uh, you get that FOMO for a lot of things, but you kind of have to just you kind of have just to you know forgive yourself and just like you know, we we don't have all the time in the world to do everything we want to do. Um, but anyway, with that said, on that minorly existential note, I should leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. On the fifth in podcast, never can't be Charlie Taylor. This has been Moss Good. Intro music has been too much by Vanilla. Uh, you can find the uh, link, uh, his link, uh, in the full show notes. Uh, thanks to your breakfast for use track. You can also find their link in the full show notes. Thank you, Happy High, for the ability to use charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. And with that said, I hope you all have a good week. I shall always try and do the same. But until the next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.